to the choir master according to the Gittith of Asaph. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule, the law of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieve your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe towards them, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come now grateful, thankful for this gift of the Lord's day. And we pray that as we have gathered with your people to sing your praises, to bring our prayers and our petitions to you, and Lord, now to hear your word. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. That, Father, we would uh, grasp the great redemptive work that you have done for us through your Son, the Lord Jesus. And that, Father, uh, today and this week, we would recognize again our need to trust wholly and completely in that which only you can do through your Son, Christ. Father, we pray particularly this morning uh, for Deb and John, John Hegstrom. Uh, we know they're watching, and so, uh, Lord, we both want to greet them and lift them up to you. And uh, thank you for uh, the way in which you continue to strengthen and sustain Deb. And we would ask that you would continue uh, to bring healing to her body. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. We find ourselves living in a cultural moment that is obsessed with identity, but not in the sense in which it's ever been previously understood. The identity we see paraded about continually is not received, it's self-generated. The day and age in which we now live, we're told that I can create my own identity. My genetics, my biology, my nationality, None of it has anything to do with the identity that I create for myself. In fact, nothing outside of the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I can form, shape, or articulate my identity. I do it myself. Furthermore, it now seems that questions of identity have nothing to do with function. 
it may surprise you to know, uh, for example, that uh, one of the fastest growing religions in the United Kingdom, and it's actually a recognized religious group, is that of Jedi Knight. So if you're a Star Wars fan, you can go to the UK and you can actually declare on your census form, your religion is you are a Jedi Knight. Several years ago, when Nathaniel and I first learned about that, in fact, I think we were actually watching the Clone Wars because uh, it's our job to watch the Clone Wars. And I think we were watching it and, and Nathaniel turned to me. He's like, so dad, so if we move to England and we declare ourselves to be Jedi Knights, do we get lightsaber?" like yeah buddy i don't think we do well so can they like force manipulate objects like if you're a jedi i could pick bob up and put him out there if i wanted to i'm like yeah buddy i don't i don't think that they can see they <laughs> they want to identify as something but they can't necessarily function as the thing for which they identify. Now, if we think about that for something, say, like gender, well, historically, as we've thought of gender and how we identify with our gender, we've tied that to the, to the ability to function in a particular way reproductively. But now we're told no. No, you create your own identity, and that identity has nothing to do with your ability to function in said identity. Psalm 81 tells us about the identity of God's people, but it doesn't do so in our newfangled sense of identity. In Psalm 81, we learn that the identity of God's people is both derivative and it is functional. Our identity as God's people is derived from the character of God himself. We are, after all, created in God's image. And as we read this morning in our call to worship, Psalm 100 declares to us that we are his people. Our identity is not from us. Rather, it is derived from the God who created us, the God who redeemed us, it is derived from his character. That identity then drives us to function in three specific ways, ways that are unpacked for us in our text this morning. If you look on page five in the bulletin, you'll see an outline for our time together. The outline is this. The big idea is this. The God who speaks and acts calls his people to rejoice, remember, and repent. The God who speaks and acts calls his people to rejoice, remember, and repent. So first, rejoice, our God hears. Rejoice, our God hears. Now, Psalm 81, as we re-enter into the psalm, it's helpful to find our place within the Psalms. Psalm 80, the psalm that we ended our year with uh, last summer, Psalm 80 was also a psalm of Asaph. And you probably don't remember this, but we, we learned last summer in Psalm 80 that it's what's called a post-exilic psalm. 
So in other words, it's a psalm that was written sometime after either 722 or 587 BC when God's people who were living in Israel and Judah uh, had the land taken away from them. They continually sinned against God. God warned them through the prophets. They didn't hear. And so finally, in an act of covenant faithfulness, God brought to pass the judgment that he promised them using first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. Well, if you were an Israelite uh, living in the time of, of, of the Old Testament and someone were to ask you, hey, tell me about who you are. Tell me about your identity. A large piece of that identity would have been tied to the land. You would have said, listen, here's the deal. God made a covenant promise with our forefather Abraham. And he promised us this land. And it's great land. It's land flowing with milk and honey. And this is the actual land that God promised to our ancestors. That's where we live. And so their identity would have been very much tied to the land. But in Psalm 81, we know they are no longer in the land. So when I say being part of the people of God is tied to the land, but you don't have the land anymore, what do you do? Where do you look? Where do you turn? And so it is stunning. It is striking that the first three verses of Psalm 81 are a call for God's people to rejoice. It's counterintuitive to say to a group of people who are living in exile away from the land, from a group of people who recognize that what has gone on in their lives is God's judgment and they earned it. But here's what you need to do. You need to sing aloud to God our strength. You need to shout for joy to the God of Jacob. You need to raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp, and blow the trumpet at the new moon at the full moon on our feast day. They're living in exile. They're living in judgment. God calls them to rejoice. He calls them to feast. Now, scholars aren't quite sure which feast they're talking about. Some think it's the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrated uh, God's faithfulness in the harvest. But regardless, here is a people living apart from the land, living apart from what is a huge piece of their identity, and God still calls them to rejoice. He gives them the command to sing aloud to God our strength, to shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Now, one of the things I think it's fairly obvious that we need to walk away from this understanding is that your ability to rejoice and to give God praise should not be determined or dictated by your circumstances. It shouldn't be, but it is. When we were living in Kentucky and, and pastoring, uh, if you're not a Kentucky basketball fan, what I'm about to say to you will make no sense whatsoever. But there's this very dark time period in the history of Kentucky basketball known as the Billy Gillespie era. It's 
met with black clothing and sackcloth and ashes. In fact, you can't really even say his name in the state. And uh, what happened was there were about three years in a row where Kentucky basically looked more like Nebraska basketball than it did like Kentucky basketball. They didn't make the NCAA tournament for like three years in a row. And, and it was, um, it was both hilarious in an ironic kind of way. And also very telling that folks would come into church on Sunday morning and their, their, I love how the Bible speaks of it. Their countenance was fallen. Life was just in the dumps because Kentucky was awful. And you'd walk down the hallway of the time between Sunday school and church. And sometimes even guys wouldn't make it into Sunday school because they'd be standing out in the hallway, coffee in hand, uh, basically dissecting all that was wrong with Kentucky basketball at that particular moment. And they would come into church and you could always tell on a Sunday if Kentucky had won the day before, if they had lost. And I thought, man, that's ridiculous. And I thought that until Nebraska lost to Virginia Tech, I punched our fireplace insert, bruised my hand, and was really upset the next day. Friends, that shouldn't be. Our circumstances, our context, does not dictate our ability to rejoice and to praise. Why? Look at verse 5. We're told that it's a decree, it's a command for us to blow the trumpet and to rejoice. But then in the end, that that last phrase in verse 5, we read this, I hear a language I had not known. I hear a language I had not known. Now, scholars aren't quite sure what to do with this. Uh, it's, it's a strange construct in Hebrew. Uh, but one of the things that one of the rules as we read our Bible is that the thing that helps us understand something that's maybe a little bit out of the, out of the ordinary is the immediate context. The immediate context is the Passover. That's right. Look at the first part of verse 5. He made a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. That's the Passover event. And then in verse 6, again, we're talking about the Passover. So what's the language that God had not known? Well, that's the first time in which God's people as a group are crying out to God for deliverance. And he hears them. Do you note how that's put? I hear a language I had not known. Why are we to rejoice? Why is our identity as God's people to be a rejoicing people? It's not because our circumstances are great or everything is awesome or I'm just happy all the time. No, I'm called to rejoice because we serve a God who hears us when we cry out to him. I hear a language I had not known. So we can rejoice. 
We can give God thanks and praise because even when our circumstances are not what we want them to be, we can cry out to the Lord and he will hear us. The Apostle Paul learned that the hard way. In Acts chapter 9, we're told that when he was still Saul of Tarsus and he was persecuting Christians, he found himself on the road to Damascus and he was there confronted by the resurrected Christ. You remember what Jesus said to Paul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Jesus heard the cries of his people. Jesus heard their call of distress. Jesus, because he is God, heard them. That's why Peter urges the church in the midst of persecution to cast your cares upon Christ. Why? Because he cares for you. He hears you. Gabrielle read for us this morning that it's Christ who sits at the right hand of God the Father, always interceding for us. Well, friends, he's not guessing. He's not just making it up. No, he can intercede for us. God the Son intercedes for us with God the Father because he hears us. And because our God hears us, we rejoice. Secondly, we remember. And what do we remember? We remember that our God delivers. Look at verses 6 through 10. I relieved you. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket in distress. You called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. It's interesting, isn't it? In verse 6, excuse me, in verse 7 we read, In distress you called. And God doesn't say that I merely heard you. No, he already told us that in verse 5. God hears, and then it goes on to say, I delivered you. In distress, you called. Not only did I hear you, but I delivered you. Now, notice the play on words then in verse 8. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. Now we're getting to the crux of this. Now we're getting to the rub. God is saying, listen, I need you to remember what I've done on your behalf. You called out to me, and not only did I hear you, but I delivered you. I heard you and I acted, but you don't hear me. You don't listen to me. In case we miss what he's kind of glancing over By the time we get to verse 11, he's going to say it much more explicitly. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God calls us to remember. He calls us to remember that in his grace and in his mercy and his power, being his people means that he has delivered you. 
He has delivered us not from the slavery and oppression of Pharaoh in Egypt, but he has saved and delivered us from the very wrath of God himself. Again, Gabrielle read it for us. That it is Christ who has rescued us. It is Christ who has redeemed us. And if Christ has set us free, then who is it who is going to bring a charge against us? If we have been justified by Christ, there is no one who can bring a charge against us. Part of being one of God's people is that we are constantly those who are called to remember. We are prone to forget. We are prone to wander. And the Bible calls us to remember and to remember God's actual and specific work. And that the remedy for being found with a strange God among us and for the remedy for not bowing down to a foreign God is to remember what he says in verse 10. I am the Lord your God. I delivered you. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Now, one of the things that the psalmist is doing uh, in Psalm 81 that we don't want to miss is at the end of every section, he's he's, uh, introducing the next section. So at the end of verse 5, he talks about this language that he hadn't known, and he hints in the first half about going, he went over the land of Egypt, talking about the deliverance that he's going to talk about specifically in verses 6 to 10. And then in verse 8, he begins, he said, listen, I, I, I'm going to admonish you. And if you'd open your mouth wide, I'll fill it. So he's introducing the next section, which is that as God's people, we need to be those who repent. Because our God provides for us, but more often than not, we want to do it ourselves. We don't trust God's provision in our lives. Look at verse 11. My people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe towards him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. Now, I think we all know that generally speaking, we don't go looking for honey from rocks. And this beautiful image that he's using in Psalm 81 actually comes to us from Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 13. It's Moses speaking in his farewell address before he goes up to die. And he's doing the same thing in a longer version than what the psalmist is doing here. He's recounting for them all that God has done for them. And not only is he recounting the past, but he's also prophetically looking into the future. And Moses tells Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 32, listen, you're going to blow it and God's going to take you out of the land. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen because you don't listen. And it's going to happen because you don't listen, and even though God has provided all of this for you, you don't really trust in God to be able to meet your need for daily bread. And so you're going to turn to other gods, 
You're going to bow down to strange gods and to foreign gods because you don't trust that God can actually do what he says, that God can provide. And so it's a call, both in Deuteronomy 32 and in Psalm 81, to repent. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Look at the ways that God says he would provide. He would subdue their enemies. He would turn his hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe. Their fate would last forever. He would feed them with the finest of wheat. And with honey from the rock, he would satisfy them. I wonder if you've ever thought of your sin in that way. As being an act of not trusting in God's provision. I wonder if you've thought about your anxiety or your worry in that way. I'm anxious because if I don't handle this, I don't know what will become of me. Now, I'm not saying that we're called somehow to sit back and do nothing. I think both the Proverbs and certainly uh, the Apostle Paul in Thessalonians reminds us, listen, hey, if you have a need for daily bread, you might want to go to work. It's a good idea. It's a means that God uses to provide for the needs that we have. But I think we also know there are seasons in which that's just not enough. So why do we allow our anxiety? Why do we allow our care and our concern to overcome us? At the end of the day, one of the reasons, perhaps not all, but one of the reasons is we don't really believe that God's going to provide for us. We believe the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve that somehow God's holding out on us. That he's got this really good thing in the back, but he's not going to give it to you. And so you just kind of need to go your own way. Because if you don't look out for number one, don't trust that God will do it. And yet Asaph says, no, no, no. Look at all that the Lord would do. He would subdue your enemies. He would turn his hand against your foes. That those who hate the Lord would cringe as they face him, that their fate would last forever. He would feed his people and not just gruel and mush and spam. It's not God's not handing out hot pockets here, right? I will feed you with the finest of wheat. And with honey from the rock I will satisfy you. So not only is God's provision remarkably good, but it's miraculous. God will provide for you in ways and in means in which you cannot even imagine. Not in the crass way of name it and claim it in prosperity theology, but in the way in which David speaks of it in Psalm 23. He anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows. Our God provides. And we need to repent of the fact that that we doubt it and we think we have to do it ourselves. For God does over and above that which we could ever even imagine. And so we repent. This morning, 
We come to the table, Paul tells us, with a very specific purpose. We're coming to remember. We're coming to remember that God has indeed delivered his people. We're calling to remember that God, in ways in which we could not imagine, in a most miraculous way, has provided that which we are most desperately in need of. That God the Father, through God the Son, delivers us from God's righteous wrath. And so we remember. We remember the broken body of the Lord Jesus. We remember the shed blood. We remember the suffering and the anguish. And as Paul tells us, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. I hope this morning that for those of us who are Christians and we hear all this talk about identity, I, I hope we should at least know enough to go, hey, wait a minute, that, that just doesn't smell right. Because my identity is not what I want it to be. My identity is not what I make it. My identity has been received by grace through faith from God the Father. As Paul tells us, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me. Your identity is received. Your identity is a derivative. And your identity is possible only through the grace and mercy and saving power of our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And we pray that as your people, as we come now to declare and to remember, Father, we would indeed remember that your son was slain, not for his own deliverance, but for ours. That he faced death, not because of his own sin, but because of ours. And that in his dying, he satisfied the wrath of a holy and righteous God. Lord, forgive us for a thinking that we can somehow construct our own identity. And Father, save us from the foolishness of that. If my identity is not in Christ, I have no hope whatsoever. If my identity is not in his finished and completed work, then one day I'm going to stand before you and I will be rightly and justly condemned. And so, Father, we bless you this morning that you offer us an identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, Father, we pray that this week we would live out that identity, that we would uh, faithfully reflect who we are in the Lord Jesus, that we would rejoice, that we would remember, and that we would repent. For we pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.